electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. It's been a spectacular collapse for oil prices this year. We're hovering just over $72 a barrel right now after a 10% drop in just the past week. Gasoline prices have also plunged and could be headed below 3 bucks nationwide. But the energy sector still up 50% this year. Is it time to bail? We'll ask. The plunge in gas prices has also been another headwind for shares of Tesla. The stock down more than 50% this year. Do the charts suggest it's about to take off again or not? And some key earnings on tap. Costco, Lululemon, and RH all do out with results after the bell today. We'll preview them in earnings exchange. But first, let's get to Dom Chu as the markets head higher, Dom. If they stay that way, we would snap a five-day losing streak, Kelly, for the S&P 500. And it's green across the screen right now. Generally fractional gains, but still, after that losing streak, the bulls will take it as a small win. The Dow right now up 168 points, one half of 1%. About two-thirds of 1% advance here for the S&P 500, up about 27 points. 39.60, the last trade for the S&P. And just to give you an idea of the trading range so far, at the highs of the session, up 41 points. At the lows, we were still up two. On the NASDAQ composite, up 100, 111 points, up over a percent. The real outperform on the day so far, 11,070, the trade for the composite. Now, thematically speaking, one place we are watching very closely is what's happening with certain names in the Chinese internet or tech sector overall. The Crane Shares China Internet ETF, ticker KWEB, we've used it often as a proxy for that big China tech trade, is now up 6% on the day. And by the way, if you look over on that right-hand side of the screen, since the lows that we saw this fall, this is an 80% move off those lows right now. Still, though, down about 27% for the year. We did at one point hit the highest level for this China Internet ETF since the end of August, just to give you an idea of where we are contextually speaking. And one of the other outperformers momentum-wise so far today has been many of the semiconductor computer chip names. As you can see here, green across the screen, some of the biggest advances in the S&P 500. NVIDIA, NXP Semi, Micron, Corvo, OnSemi, all up 3 to 5% on that trade. So the momentum here for some of those chip names today. But Kelly, they still remain pretty range-bound over the course, as an industry at least, over the course of the last couple of weeks here. So we'll see if there's a breakout anytime soon for those chip stocks. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thanks. You know what? Come on over. Just come on over and join us for this next conversation because my next guest has some controversial picks and we need the chooser to weigh in. Uh, Nuveen is out with its 2023 calls on the economy and the best places to invest. And Sarah Malik is Nuveen's CIO and head of the firm's Global Investment Committee. And she is here to run through it. Sarah, the uh, controversial is what I was uh, meant in referencing your REIT pick. Which, if I'm correct, is this an area where you guys think investors should be for 2023? You mean looking at, did you say REITs? Yeah. Uh, You know, we like um, public REITs. We think that they've priced in excessive pessimism for this year. If you look at the stocks, they're down significantly more than than they usually are during downward cycles. So they've overly priced in what we acknowledge is a rollover in the housing market. And this is important. Oftentimes, the stocks 
will price in what's going on with the fundamentals well ahead of time. In a cyclical industry like real estate, I think public REITs do look interesting at these prices because they're overdone on the downside. What do you think, Dom? So it's interesting because you mentioned the residential side of things, and there's no doubt real estate is more tied to interest rate markets than possibly many other industries out there. But when it comes to residential, we've seen the rollover and the cool-off in housing prices. The curious part will be whether or not it impacts commercial real estate more heavily than it does the residential market, only because at certain points during COVID, there was such a massive move towards people wanting to invest in warehouse space and certain other parts of the commercial industry side of things. Meanwhile, office space really took a hit during that time as well. So there's a real tug of war push and pull out there. But there's no doubt that rates are part of that story. And by the way, it's not just because of the borrowing costs associated with the leverage in the real estate market. It's also because there's now an alternative to investing in REITs. They were always a dividend play, an income play. And now you could get risk-free income for about three and a half to four and a half percent in treasuries. Right. It makes CDs. those real estate. Right. It makes those real estate investments, by the way, a little less attractive. And by the way, liquid savings accounts are now yielding anywhere from two to two and a half percent. So it's pretty decent. And Sarah, that goes back to the question of why take the exposure risk right now when we're not sure if we're going to be facing with QT next year, even less liquidity in the system. You know, I think that basically when you're looking at the fundamentals, and I agree that you need to be selective within uh, the real estate sector. Commercial, I think, does have some structural issues going forward, especially in urban centers. But there's other areas that remain quite strong in the more rural centers and also in apartment areas and um, other residential areas. I think the other good news with real estate, though, is that it's disinflationary. So if you look at the inflation numbers going forward, shelter prices have been a key reason why inflation has peaked and start to roll, roll over, as well as less spending on goods, which was another big component of inflation going forward. Now, the bad news, of course, is wages. Wages remain very high. Mm -hmm. uh, they're a large component of inflation. And that's why we think inflation stays likely higher for longer. And the slope of the decline is not as extreme as maybe the market's hoping for. That's interesting because you guys in general seem to have a, a playbook that is more about recession than inflation risk. So you do think we're going to have kind of these persistent price pressures overall, then what does this boil down to in terms of where investors need to be? So for 2023, the key risk is a recession. And the two reasons why we're worried about it are the impacts of tighter monetary policy and the mixed economic data that we're seeing. And what is that impact on earnings, which are likely still too high for next year, corporate margins, and also the consumer. So how do you build a recession-resistant playbook? Within equities, look at companies like dividend growers. They do have this income component and lower volatility. They still look cheap to us. Outside of it, we actually like fixed income over equities. You can get equity-like returns from fixed income in higher quality areas, such as investment grade. And then outside of public markets, you can look at real assets like farmland and infrastructure. These tend to be more resilient sectors with companies like waste management in them and for infrastructure. And this, again, is fairly recession resilient. That's what you want yeah. to focus on next year as we do worry about economic data. One of the biggest areas, Dom, of opportunity, I don't know if you caught Dave Zervo saying it yesterday, that he would, instead of equity risk, rather have credit risk. Um, for instance, a little bit, you know, lower than investment grade where you get some mid-teens kind of returns right now. And we'll talk about this next hour. It comes at the same time that there's some risk of bankruptcies rising um, if companies can't sustain their operations without the liquidity environment that we've had. What's interesting, and Sarah kind of has been, I'm sure, watching these dynamics as well, what you're seeing in certain parts of the fixed income market, and credit especially, and certainly in investment grade, and to a certain degree in higher graded junk bonds, I right. guess is what you could call them, right? Uh, and to that point, you're not seeing at least, I mean, there's been a downturn, There's no, no, no matter how, not how you slice it, but it hasn't priced in what could be a deep recession. If, if there were, you would see high yield debt 
off a lot more sure. than it is right now. For that reason, I'm hearing a lot more investors and traders tilt towards that credit side of things. And even more so, I mean, Sarah mentions investment grade. I'm hearing more and more about high grade junk. So single Bs exactly. and that kind of side of things, not going out into the C handles out there, but you could find some of those opportunities that could give you somewhat equity-like returns right. and, and put you higher up on the capital structure. Right. So in case things do go wrong, there's at least some tiny amount of recourse on that level versus stocks. And Sarah, I, that kind of introduces the other place you think people should be looking, which is actually to munis uh, to some extent, where areas that might be a little safer, as we all know, government a little less likely uh, to have to tighten its purse strings than the private sector. Yeah, I think municipals, municipalities also, they're very strong. The fundamentals are strong. And so munis, while they've had poor returns this year, uh, the backing behind them with the fundamentals looks really good. So high total returns there. And I do agree on high yield. High yield is much higher quality this cycle than it has been in prior cycles. It's It's got large exposure to energy. Those companies are performing very well um, in terms of their fundamentals. So another area I wouldn't count out is high yield. All those areas, high yield, investment grade, and munis can give you total returns that look to us a lot like equity returns have been in the past. Well, we never talk so much about credit as we are. In the top block of a show. Yes, exactly. Sarah, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thanks Sarah Malik with me. Nuveen. Don, a huge thank you as well. Let's turn to Tesla now, the once high flyer, which continues to underperform the broader markets. The stock is down more than 12% just this month, down 20% since CEO Elon Musk acquired Twitter at the end of October. But my next guest says the technicals are pointing to a bounce. Here to explain is Jessica Inskip. She's director of product at Options Play. Jessica, welcome. So how big of a bounce do you think? So there's bullish divergence that's forming. And so think about volatility as a whole and how it works. And it's really plays out even with KWIP that we were just speaking about. Volatility, the definition is uncertainty. The Twitter deal was uncertainty. Tesla, by definition and its characteristics, has a high beta, which means it moves more than the market. Later on, those macro headwinds uncertainty. Now we have additional volatility, which means sharp downswings and then also sharp upswings. So the Twitter deal absolutely was the catalyst that moved um, Tesla right below the 200 daily moving average. So now what I'm targeting is support. Now that we have resolution or we have clarity, now we're going to find where that, that level of support is fined. And that's around the 200 weekly moving average, targeting 165. Now from upwards from there, the next resistance zone is about 200. And I know that's a, a sharp movement, but again, it's Tesla. Tesla moves quite a bit, has a high beta. So we expect sharp movements upwards and downwards and hopefully some clarity now that the, the Twitter deal is closed and we see what Elon Musk does with that. Yeah, and that would be a sigh of relief for frustrated Tesla investors. And what do you think after that point, though? I mean, can we take a longer term look at the charts here and look at whether there's a lot of potential upside or if this is more of a trading range? So it's certainly a short term trading bounce that you're targeting. Just like that uncertainty with Tesla itself, macro headwinds have to be resolved. Tesla, though, when we're, we're thinking about picking stocks in this type of environment, Layering on technicals is absolutely wonderful, but Tesla has also consistently beat their earnings. We're seeing layoffs across the tech sector, and when that happens and there's a shakeup, that means it's an opportunity for remanagement, product focus, and innovation. And Elon Musk is spearheading that. So he's not someone that I would bet against because he concentrates on those earnings, which is important to have a catalyst for a longer-term bounce. So would it be correct to say that, in a way, the chart suggests that Tesla is oversold and and that a longer term sustainable trading level might be more around the 200 level or higher. 
Correct. Absolutely. Hit the nail on the head. Do you have anything to say then about what the broader markets would have to do in order for that to happen? Because we talk about how it's such a high beta stock, maybe you know twice as, as volatile as the overall market. Um, then if it's going up to 200, can I feel bullish about the whole stock market? Uh, not necessarily, because it doesn't have a huge weight within the S&P 500 overall, and it does fall under discretionary. However, from the overall market, just like we need clarity to find our price point, that 200 price point for Tesla, we need clarity for the overall broader market. So really, we're still searching for Catalyst as we count down till next week, and, and Powell tells us how restrictive he's going to be or, or how long he's going to keep rates at where they are. Yeah, as for, it's the only thing that matters <laughs> for Tesla, uh, for so many other names. <laughs> Jessica, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Jessica Inskip. Coming up, don't look now, but gasoline is cheaper than it was at the beginning of the year and crude oil as well. How do we come full circle? We'll look at the spectacular price collapse next. Plus, earnings exchange is back with a vengeance. So break out the yoga pants, snacks, and catalogs because we're talking and trading Lulu, Costco, and RH ahead of their reports. The exchange is back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Oil and gasoline prices are at 52-week lows. But still, energy stocks are a lot of cases near 52-week highs, with companies like Exxon using their cash for more share buybacks. Oil is 3% below where it was last December. Gasoline, similar story, trading right near 52-week lows. The AAA national average for gasoline, 332 from 343 this time last year. So are energy stocks going to be the next to crack? Let's bring in Stan Major, Hotchkiss and Wiley's mid-cap fund portfolio manager. Stan, it is great to see you again, but it is a very different landscape than it was a couple of months ago. What happened? You know, I think uh, if you look at the short term, there's been a number of things that have kept oil prices down. Um, in general, weak economy, uh, strategic petroleum reserve has added hundreds of millions of barrels onto the market. So I think it's temporarily uh, hidden some of the issues that are in the energy market. And by issues, I mean long-term supply-demand imbalances. Yeah, it's fascinating, and I was writing about it this morning, but to look back at what um, the oil bearers like Ed Morse over at City were saying earlier this year, he correctly predicted that we would have excess uh, inventories right now, the opposite problem of what we thought would happen. How do we get into this situation? So I think, uh, you know, economic weakness, strategic petroleum reserve, I think um, in general people thought Russia production would come off. Um, it has yet to come off, and we've added that extra supply from uh, strategic petroleum reserves to offset that, and it has yet to happen. So I think what we've seen is uh, temporarily um, 
prices have been suppressed. The the big issue in the oil market is that uh, the world is just not spending enough money for long-term demand. So demand is suppressed. It's 100-ish million barrels a day. That's similar to where it was in 2019. But the potential is that the world will demand, you know, 103, 104, 105 million barrels a day. And the issue is, it is very difficult to see how we'll supply that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Exxon. They came out with their capital expenditures. Uh, Chevron did the other day. These are companies that are spending, in the case of Exxon, $25 billion next year, roughly. Uh, Chevron is, is somewhere around 15-ish billion. Uh, those companies used to spend in 2013, 2014, in a smaller market, over $30 billion a year. So the spending is just not back hmm. to sustain a larger demand uh, growth market. And, and that's the issue that the oil market is going to run into when we run out of these short-term uh, yeah. factors suppressing demand. And even a guy like Ed acknowledges that as we move throughout the decade with the energy transition and the rest of it, political pressures, that we could see more structural upward price pressure on oil. So what would you it's say? It's hard to, to see how it doesn't happen. Yeah. And, and can investors then be comfortable with this as an asset class for the longer term, even if they feel kind of bruised by the recent uh, price collapse? You know, absolutely. If you look at the valuations of the stocks, these companies trade at 10 to 20 percent free cash flow yield. So think of that as you know, five to 10 times earnings. They're taking that free cash flow and buying back stock. So th those earnings, that free cash flow per share is growing very rapidly. And that's why we've seen stocks up 40 to 50 percent, even though the oil market, as you mentioned, is slightly down. What are your favorite names in the space? Are they have they remained consistent, or would you now start to look at different parts of, of the sector? Uh, they're consistent. You know, we we focus on kind of that small to mid cap E and P company that's taking that free cash flow, buying back stock, um, maintaining capital discipline. So it's, it's it's similar to what we've owned for the last few years. Final question: You know, should we be then using these low oil prices if you think they're temporary and and kind of suppressed? then is now the right time to try to fill up the SPR or make other strategic moves that we could to capitalize on where prices are, you know, just for the moment? Yeah, the, the world is very exposed to risks. So we've we've released uh, emergency stockpiles without a real emergency. Uh, companies are not spending enough money. We're exposed to any issues, whether it's Middle East production, Russian production coming off, Chinese demand coming back on. That's the issue. So anything we can do to prevent that, the real issue is you have to give confidence to companies to spend for projects that will come on 5, 10, 15 years from now, and they really don't have that. So that, that's where the situation in the long run gets pretty dire. Do you think we could be spiking back up to 100 in the near term? It, it's, it's difficult to see how we don't in the next few years. Hmm. All right. Then this would be opportune. Stan, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Good to see you again. Stan Major with Hotchkiss and Wiley. Still ahead, you've heard of white-collar crime, but what about a white-collar recession? A look at the layoffs hitting some of the fields you might least expect. And Disney Plus's new ad-supported tier launches today. Will it be enough to jumpstart the stock, which is having its worst year in nearly five decades? That's ahead. And speaking of Disney, here's a look at the Dow heat net map with Boeing, Nike, and Cisco leading the way. Goldman and Amex, those are your underperformers. We're back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. 
From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We were up 301 at the highs, about half of that right now, but all three averages are in the green, and the Nasdaq with a 1% bounce after a tough recent stretch. And here are some of the movers this hour. It's a big move higher for Sienna, the company posting strong EPS, revenue, and a margin beat. We're talking about favorable supply chain developments in the later, latter part of the quarter. That's a 20% pop for CIEN. Hershey, meanwhile, hitting an all-time high. They got an upgrade over at UBS to buy. They're expecting the company to remain in a beat and raise cycle for the next three years. A lot of optimism there about prospects for Hershey. The firm at the same time is downgrading Mondelez, the Oreo maker, to neutral, saying macro headwinds like inflation, strong dollar, and higher rates will likely cap their earnings growth next year. Elsewhere, Salesforce is falling to its lowest level since March of 2020. Unbelievable pandemic lows we're talking about here. The stock has been under pressure since its earnings report off 18% this month alone. CEO Mark Benioff will join Mad Money tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern. We look forward to that. Let's get to Bertha Coombs now for a CNBC News update. Bertha? Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Dan Snyder, the owner of the Washington Commanders, allowed a toxic work culture for more than two decades. That's one of the conclusions in the report by a House panel investigating the team. The committee also says Snyder obstructed the inquiry and that the NFL misled the public and, quote, continues to minimize workplace misconduct across the league. Hundreds of journalists and other employees at the New York Times are on a 24-hour walkout, their first strike in over 40 years. Members of the News Guild of New York say they are tired of bargaining that has dragged on since their last contract expired in March of last year. A spokesperson for the Times says the paper has contingency plans to keep operating without disruptions. And in Rome, Pope Francis wept while praying for peace in Ukraine. It happened near the Spanish steps during an annual Christmas visit. The crowd broke into applause when they realized that the Pope was overcome with tears and encouraged him to continue, which he did. Very moving. Wow. And a, a reminder, as Bertha, as so many of us have moved on uh, from following that story wow. day in and day out, that you know these are human lives, just horrible events happening there every day. Really, yeah. that's true. Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs. Up next, Costco, Lululemon, RH. They're all on deck with earnings after the bell. We'll get the action, the story, and the trade on all three. We're back after this. Welcome back. Recession, inflation, all of that's front of mind right now as we head into the key holiday spending period. And there are some notable stocks set to report earnings that could give us a sense for all three. It's time now for a retail edition of Earnings Exchange. We give you the action, the story, and the trade on three names, all reporting after the bell today. And we will start with house favorite Costco. The shares are slightly lower today. They're actually on pace for their first annual loss in five years, down about 15% since January. Just last week, they reported November sales that disappointed. CNBC's retail reporter Melissa Repko is here with the story today for us. Gina Sanchez, Lido Advisors, Chief Market Strategist and a CNBC contributor. Hi, Gina. She is here with our trades. All right, so Melissa, Costco, what's happening? What's wrong? 
So, Kelly, we heard some weak numbers when it put out its November sales. And so we already know how sales are going to look. I'll be listening for how it's doing in other ways. So how is its membership count looking? And are people upgrading to its more expensive membership? I'll also be listening for how the merchandise mix is looking in recent weeks. That's one of the weaknesses of November, that people were buying fewer of discretionary items like jewelry and more of food. And then the third thing is its forecast. You know, what is it thinking about as it ends the year and looks ahead to next year? Is it expecting some of the same trends it saw in November or was that just a blip? All right, Gina, is it ever wise to bet against Costco? Well, you know, look, this is something that in a recession, that's where everybody goes to buy cheap things in bulk. And with resets, uh, mortgage resets, rent increases and other other cost prices higher, um, everyone's going to be looking to downgrade their their budgets. And this is a great place for it. The problem with Costco is that it's just trading um, at a really slight discount to its long term valuation. It's 32 times the long term valuation is like 37. So, you know, this isn't really a bargain where it is and the economy is slowing. So it's really hard to get excited. But if you hold it, you hold it. This is, you know, it's not a bad. It has performed well relative to the rest of the retail space. How much of a bellwether are they, Melissa? Because they're such a unique uh, beast. But then when you describe the selection issues they were facing in November, that feels like it's probably pretty common across the industry. One of the challenges is that they're just going up against really tough comparisons, but they do have a more affluent consumer, so that could help them in some ways. And then they do benefit, as Gina mentioned, from that element of stretching your dollar more by getting bulk packaging. So they may benefit from people seeing the value and shopping there more. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's move on to Lululemon. Uh, They're faring slightly better than Costco, believe it or not, this year, down only 5%, on pace to snap a six-year winning streak still. And for those keeping score at home, they've beaten the street on 18 of the past 20 quarters when it comes to earnings and revenue. That is very impressive, Melissa. We barely even talk about Lulu anymore. Yes, you know, Lululemon is really one that investors have high hopes about and high expectations for because it is so consistent and it has a lot of pricing power. You know, their goods do sell at a higher price point and that's attracted a wealthier shopper who in theory could be more insulated from the pressure of inflation. So there is hope about strong store traffic during the holidays, strong holiday demand, and there's even a possibility of them raising their forecast. That's what some investors hope to hear today. But, of course, it's navigating a different environment. On the one hand, it's dealing with cheaper freight costs, so it's going up against a time when it was actually flying in merchandise in some cases a year ago. On the other hand, it's competing with a lot of retailers that have excess inventory and are marking things down, including athletic apparel. True, true, because we're starting to see that become more widespread. Gina, Lulu has matured nicely as a stock. This turns out to not just be a flash in the pan story or, or even to suffer too much from the liquidity issues that we're seeing this year. So what do you do with it? Well, so look, I, Lulu is one that is bucking the trend because, um, you know, as mentioned, it is a higher priced uh, uh, item. They rarely discount. And this was a pandemic, darling, that I thought would lose steam, and it hasn't. In fact, you know, the, the return to work didn't actually cause people to abandon their yoga pants. Now we have enough flexibility in our schedule that you can justify uh, a full complement of yoga pants at home. Uh, so, <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I think that that's definitely, and if you look at their earnings and you look at the expectations, I agree that the expectations are probably, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge to this stock is that there are very high expectations and we are going into a slowdown. But if you look at how it's performed so far, it has been exceptional and has done very well relative to other competitors. So you know, clearly there's there there's a huge affinity toward this brand. Oh, sure. And I'm curious if that leaves you positive on the stock, despite how you feel about the rest of retail or if you're relatively optimistic about the other apparel makers, too. 
So I'm actually positive on this stock relative to the rest because they are showing that they have pricing power and they're showing that they have brand affinity. And when times get tough, those things matter. Yeah, uh, don't they? Uh, all right, we'll move on now to RH. Formerly known as Restoration Hardware, the shares have been cut in half this year. Their first down year in five, but they have risen four out of the last four reports. And revenue is expected to grow about 16% year over year. Melissa, what are you watching here? So with RH, it's really more important to think about 2023. I think there are a lot of questions about the housing environment and what that means. You know, they do cater to a more luxury shopper and that consumer in some cases was buying a second home or redoing their home during that pandemic. That dynamic has started to recede. So what will that mean for 2023? Are these customers able to keep spending on expensive furniture? Or are they also going to feel the pinch going into the next year? They are also pushing into new areas. They recently opened their first hotel in New York, and this is a new channel for them. So what are they going to get out of those new types of businesses? They also launched a new line of furniture. So some of those growth areas could help them during a more challenging stretch. Wow, a hotel. Yes. No wonder they're RH now, not Restoration Restoration Hotel or or what have you. I see a face there, though, Gina. You're not a fan of that move? Well, that's just an interesting move, although I could see it if you want everybody to try out your furniture and then go and buy it. Right. So maybe it's really just a, a showroom in action. Um, but but the problem with RH is that they they just they're not a discount. They don't like to discount. They haven't discounted. And I think luxury um, is going to be really challenging. And, and here you're actually seeing the the impact already. We're already seeing kind of a, a downward trend in their revenues. And this this company is trading very cheap. It's trading at 13 times um, earnings. This is a company that normally trades at 30 times. Um, but we think it's probably cheap for a reason right now, because not only is the trend down in terms of revenues and earnings, but the expectations are also down. Um, it's a, and, and we're also seeing short interest piling up on this stock as well. Um, so, you know, th- this one I think is far more challenged. It's such a, so this is going to be a busy afternoon for you, Melissa. Yes, definitely. Lots of interesting things we'll hear about how the consumer's doing. Yeah, we need these touch points right now. It's a kind of blurry dashboard as we head into 2023. We'll leave it there, guys. Thank you, Melissa Repco and Gina Sanchez. Always appreciate it. Still ahead, Disney launching its ad-supported tier of Disney Plus today, but will it boost subscription numbers and revenue, or will viewers just trade down. We'll get the latest. And before we head to break, let's do some show and tell, where we show you a chart and tell the story. Cummins shares are outperforming the industrials this year, despite having the most exposure to China. Here's what the CEO told Seema Modi earlier today about their outlook on the COVID crisis there. China is an important part of our business, both the products we sell in the country. It's a big market for us, as well as uh, some supply out of China. I'm encouraged by the signs that some of the lockdowns are are lifting. What I would say is today still the economy has really been down for us in China um, and a lot of uncertainty uh, given the lockdowns and how that will transpire in the coming weeks and months. Welcome back, everybody. Disney Plus launching their ad-supported tier today. But will it do anything to boost shares of Disney, which have been underperforming considerably this year? The stock is off more than 40% from its high of 160 back in January. It's down more than 5% just this week. Will today's launch move the needle on subscriptions and the bottom line? Let's ask Julia Borston. Julia? Hi, Kelly. Well, Disney is hoping that this new ad-supported tier, which costs the same as the original streaming app, did before a $3 price hike, 
They hope that this new version will draw new subscribers and also retain those that are looking to save money. Disney saying that it has secured more than 100 advertisers, which will appear no more than four minutes of pre-roll and mid-roll spots per hour. Now, Disney's new ad-supported option, it costs a dollar more than Netflix's version. The only one of these ad-supported streamers that costs more is HBO Max. Now, back in August, former Disney CEO Bob Chapek told me that if customers trade down to the new ad-supported tier, that at worst it would be neutral, but it could end up being margin accretive. Moffat Nathanson forecasting that Netflix could generate $1.2 billion in ad revenue, Disney plus $1.8 billion in ad revenue by 2025 in the U.S. market alone. Now, the good news for streamers is that despite an overall advertising slowdown, display video advertising, that's what you see in these apps, that is expected to grow at a compound annual rate of 8.8% in the U.S. between 2022 and 2027. That's faster than the digital ad average. Now, media giants, Netflix, CNBC's parent NBC Universal with Peacock, Warner Discovery, all of them are counting on ad-supported streaming to drive growth in new markets and to help prevent subscriber losses and more saturated ones. And of course, they're all facing such uncertain times. Back but over to you, if Kelly. you have Roku, Julia, you might not be able to have the option of watching ad-supported Disney. Is that right? That's right, Kelly. Disney Plus with ads is available pretty much everywhere except for Roku. And that is because Disney and Roku have not come to an agreement yet around the revenue share. Roku, of course, does have its own ad-supported free channel itself. Um, and I'm sure there is some conflict here about how much Disney wants to actually give up to Roku of its ad revenue or of its subscription fees. And they'll have to work that out and figure that out before you'll be able to get that version of the app on the Roku platform. You know, I thought it was interesting what you said that it could be a neutral to the bottom line for Disney or maybe accretive. I mean, maybe accretive is a big difference from not accretive, right? There's a well, lot riding on this. Yeah, yes. There's a lot writing on this. And I, I think the key thing here, Kelly, is that if you don't want to pay for the price increase, you want to keep paying the same amount per month that you were paying originally for Disney Plus, and you don't mind watching some ads, then you'll just switch to this version. But I think the idea is that they hope that it will be margin accretive, that the idea is that if you're paying something in a subscription fee and also generating the revenue from them for them for advertising, that together that will end up um, benefiting Disney more. Um, but of course, that was under the old Bob. Uh, right. th that was under Bob. Bob Chapek, now there is a new Bob in charge, so we'll see how it all plays out. You know, I wouldn't be surprised because I was a subscriber to, to some version of this, which I was only reminded of when they emailed me about the price increase. And I think for most people, it's just easier to ride that price increase and think to themselves, I'll deal with this later, than to go and figure out how to switch tiers. I mean, you know, for streaming in general, while churn is much higher than in cable and traditional television, it's still not as high as it really could be because there's so much stickiness surrounding the use of your passwords, logging in and just figuring out, you know, how to even switch through some of these systems. And a lot of analysts have said that Disney is going to be a lot stickier because it has that kids content, which kids demand and also are willing to watch over and over. But I think it will be interesting to see what happens with the economy going into next year. If people say, look, I'm paying for so many different services. Let me pay less for most of them or cut some of them out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a, a huge test looming. Dis uh, Julia, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Our Julia Borston. Coming up, the economy may not be in recession, but my next guest says the white collar labor market already is. ZipRecruiter's chief economist joins us with what that's telling her about the jobs market and the broader economy next. 
Welcome back, everybody. We start with the news alert out of Washington with the Dow up 254. Elon Moy here with the details. Elon? Kelly, the House has just passed the annual defense authorization bill with broad bipartisan support. The final vote tally was 350 to 80, almost equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats voting in favor. Remember, this bill would authorize $858 billion in defense spending for fiscal 23. That's more than the president had requested. It also includes a 4.6 percent pay increase for members of the military as well as DOD civilians. And importantly, it repeals the vaccine mandate for military service members. Those were key compromises between both parties. Now that it's passed the House, the bill will go on to the Senate where it's expected to pass as well and then head over to the president's desk. But Kelly, now that first step is done with the House passing the annual defense authorization bill. Back over to you. All right, Elon, thank you very much. Let's get a quick check on the defense ETF, the ITA, which is positive today. And even more impressive, it's up 8% for the year in which the broader market's down about 20%. Northrop, Lockheed, General Dynamics, all up more than 19%. Now, we've seen a lot of layoffs in the tech sector this year with major companies like Meta, Amazon, and Microsoft cutting jobs. But it's not just tech where we're seeing a slowdown. Far fewer jobs are being posted in industries ranging from healthcare to finance, even to science. This is data from ZipRecruiter since June. And my next guest is ZipRecruiter's chief economist. She says all of this is telling her one thing, we're in a white collar recession. For more joining me now, let's bring in Julia Pollack uh, from ZipRecruiter. Julia, it's great to see you. Do we call it a recession yet or is this just a slowdown? Well, so far in the aggregate numbers, the labor market is still very strong, right? The last jobs report showed 60% more jobs added across the economy, and those jobs are still being added across a very broad set of industries. But if you look at job openings and if you look at layoffs, uh, you can see that layoffs have risen most in white collar industries like real estate, information and financial services, and that job postings have also declined most in six of the seven industries with the largest declines in job postings since June, which is when job postings started to sort of change and turn over. Uh, those those industries are very, very white collar industries that have been growing uh, by leaps and bounds in recent years. Can you contrast that with, I don't know if ZipRecruiter has as much data on so-called blue-collar jobs, but is that part of Absolutely. the economy holding up much more strongly? It's holding up much more strongly. I and mean, by contrast, job postings have risen 24% in personal care services. That's things like hair salons and nail salons uh, and laundromats and dry cleaning services. Uh, they're also up strongly in travel. Uh, and in healthcare, and healthcare, of course, uh, has very strong long-term prospects and doesn't typically lose jobs at all in a recession. Uh, and with an aging population, that industry is likely to continue growing. Yeah, that's been one area where we've almost, you know, it's been almost recession-proof uh, for quite some time. So just because we're seeing a pullback in job openings, does that necessarily mean the next step could be layoffs? Because this is such a, a strange environment where we've had so many job openings in the economy, the Fed is literally targeting it to try to dial it back some, but without causing a bigger kind of labor market recession. It's not clear if that if they can kind of thread that needle. So overall in the economy right now, there are about 1.4 million layoffs and firings happening each month. That's about 500,000 fewer each month than before the pandemic when there were 1.9 million a month. Okay, so, so overall, 
Workers have never had it so good. They've never had this much job security. That said, if you look under the hood a little bit and you look by industry, uh, layoffs and discharges, uh, if you look at this quarter versus the previous quarter, are up 38% in real estate, up 21% in information, you know, up, up 20% in financial services. Uh, they're also rising in travel and transportation and warehousing. Those are industries that grew very rapidly when people were spending on goods, when they couldn't spend on services during the pandemic. But now that people are shifting back to services, we're seeing truckers and warehousing workers getting laid off as well. Yeah. Do you think this can stay contained to these certain white collar industries where things are slowing? Or do you think spreading it out and um, unfortunately signaling a broader downturn is probably what's happening here? So I think the number one factor to look at is the strength of the U.S. consumer. And we've all seen the chart that shows credit card loan debt uh, returning to its pre-COVID trend. And it looks pretty alarming, right? The fastest growth in credit card debt sort of on record. That said, uh, if you look at those data in context, if you look at credit card payments, debt service payments as a share of disposable income, they're still historically very low and way below pre-COVID levels. And if you look at delinquencies in most kind, you know, when it comes to most kinds of loans, they're still falling or flat uh, and very, very low by historical standards. So the consumer does not yet appear to be uh, hurting and pulling back. And if consumer spending on goods and services remains strong, we might just see the labor market kind of tilt back to normal, but not actually uh, fall into, into recessionary territory. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? By the way, do you guys have any data on wages to indicate where that important source of inflationary pressures is headed or, or heading? Yeah, so finding out what's actually happening with wages is one of the hardest things to do because right now the data are very mixed and um, uh, you know these averages that we get from the Labor Department are often distorted by shifting industry mixes of jobs. That said, we have a great survey of 2,550 workers hired in the last six months. And we ran that survey in February and we ran it in October. And we found that the share of workers who got double-digit pay increases, the share of job switchers uh, who got double-digit pay increases rose from 31% in February to 43% in October. Uh, we also see that the share getting signing bonuses went up, not down. Wow. And so reports of the labor market cooling, broadly speaking, may be exaggerated still in those uh, you know, blue-collar industries and uh, manual services, work, uh, employers are still rolling out the red carpet for workers and, uh, and are still facing incredible competition for talent. Fascinating. A very different environment than what we've been in lately. Julia, thanks for showing it to us. We appreciate it. Take care. Julia Pollock from ZipRecruiter. Coming up, for inflation to come down, rents have to come down too. But that's not happening in Manhattan. We'll look at why rents aren't and what it means for the city and the inflation picture next. As we go to break, let's take a look at shares of GameStop trading near session highs right now, up almost 10 percent despite their results coming in weaker than expected. They saw demand decline in core products, including a 19 percent drop in video game software sales. This obviously one of the big meme stocks that traded over $75 a share back in 2021 and just over $24 today. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Manhattan rents have remained stubbornly high, and that's now presenting two problems. Robert Frank is here with more. Robert? Well, Kelly, the median rent in Manhattan increasing 2% in November and up 19% over the past year. Many had expected rents to finally start coming down. That didn't happen. The average rent in Manhattan now over $5,200 a month. 
So this is creating a problem for inflation, since rents are a big component of these inflation measures, and New York is, of course, the nation's largest rental market. The rest of the country is seeing lower rents, but New York prices, they just haven't followed. It's also a problem for young renters, who are once again getting priced out of Manhattan. New leases fell 39% in November. That is the biggest decline since the start of the pandemic in 2020. Brokers telling me many renters are now facing rent hikes of 20% or more from their leases, and they're simply leaving or downsizing or just not re-signing. That has not been enough to increase supply. The vacancy rate is 2.4%. That is well below the norm. And Kelly, it's that tight supply that's keeping these prices elevated. And given the shortage of apartments, it's going to be months before we start to see prices actually start to decline again. Do and Does anybody, Robert, think that prices are going to drop in the near term? Well, there was one ray of hope for renters in this November report, which is that the landlord concessions, which is typically like free rent or free electricity for a month, those ticked up slightly. So that's a sign that, you know, at least the landlords realized they may have overreached in November and they're starting to pull back. Brokers tell me December is looking a little better. So we'll have to wait for that report. You know, if you were talking about Manhattan, I'd think to myself, well, you know, people are going to Brooklyn, Queens. That's a different dynamic. But because this encompasses the whole city, I'm surprised that there's where are people going then if they're looking for lower rents? And how is that affecting the surrounding areas, you think? Yeah, so these numbers are Manhattan. So they are, in fact, going to the boroughs and a lot of them are moving back out to the suburbs. So you had a lot of people moving out of the city during COVID. They moved back in 2020, 21. And now they may go back to the suburbs again just because they came in when rents were 20% lower than they are today. So it's a mix of the suburbs as well as the outer boroughs. Also curious because I've seen so many new buildings going up lately in the city. Are yeah. there not uh, you know, large projects underway that could increase the supply? There are large projects and anyone who can see all the sky cranes and the scaffolding sees, well, we don't have yeah. a supply problem. In fact, most of those buildings are very high-end condos geared toward wealthy buyers. And the wealthy buyers are pulling back from the market. They're actually in the rental market now because they don't want to buy. Hmm. So that's going to be supply that's really kind of mothballed until the sales market recovers. It's not going to help the rental market. Oh, it seems so unfair to have these huge, beautiful projects just kind of yep. not with as much interest and while everyone sitting else. sitting empty. Yeah. Oh, Robert, thank you. Robert Frank with the very latest on those rents. Speaking of housing, we'll keep the conversation going with the head of one real estate fund who says now is a time to buy. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 